All right, we are back for our last session, I believe, on limited atonement. Obviously, this has been such a controversial issue. It's so easily misunderstood. There are so many texts that get thrown our way to say, what about this? What about that? We've, we've tried to walk through as many of those as we can. And, and in Sunday school yesterday, Greg and I only had about five minutes to deal with one of the strongest texts on the other side of the debate for unlimited atonement, at least that is, that is used for that view. And so since we only covered it very briefly, I wanted to spend some extended time dealing with that now. And it's this question. Did Jesus buy, purchase those who eventually apostatize and fall away from the Christian faith? And I really want to take this seriously. Um, you know, what we often say around here is that we want to believe every verse. We want to believe every verse. But remember what we keep saying about that? A text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Any text taken out of its proper context and, and misapplied can lead us into all kinds of false teaching. So let's look at this verse. It's probably the, it may be the number one verse used against the position of limited atonement or particular redemption. It's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And here's what, here's what happens here. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people, and this is talking about the Old Testament people, False prophets arose among the people, just as there will be, what? False teachers among you. So just as in Old Testament Israel, we had false prophets, so in the New Testament church, we have false teachers among the people or among you. That is among the covenant community, among the church. And, and th this, this word uh, among, among the people, among you, th that's going to be significant for what's coming in a minute. So let's again keep reading. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. What this means is, oh wow, that does not look good. So there you go. Churches, right? Among you means these are people who are church members. These are baptized members of local churches in the church age. These are people who once were walking in darkness and now have claimed to have had a conversion. They now profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They now love God's Word. They've entered into covenant with His people. They've been baptized in public identification with Jesus. They've, their life has changed dramatically. They're not under, they, they were not under church discipline for a period of time. They were walking in apparent holiness and righteousness. These people, for all intents and purposes, were Christians. They would have been called Christians. That's important to what's coming. So, just as there were false prophets among the people, uh, there will also be false teachers among you, church communities, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So here's what we learn. <clears throat> These people are going to be destroyed. These people are going to be judged. They are going to, to uh, they're, they're, they're going to die uh, in judgment. These people are not believers. Their end is destruction. But they were once among you, amongst the church community. And we're told that they are going to do something secretly. Again, secretly is important. These people are among the churches. They're among the people of God. And so when they start bringing in false teaching... Uh, what's called here destructive heresies that lead to destruction, right? Um, they do this secretly. It's not known that this is a wolf at first. 
so the modern day example would be persons apparently radically converted, baptized, joins your church. They used to be an alcoholic, drunkard, drug abuser, whatever, sexually immoral. They, they appear to have cleaned all that up. They, they are not living in those flagrant sins anymore. And now, let's say it's a guy, he's leading a Bible study. <clears throat> Meets down the road at, the, at, a, at some breakfast place every Thursday morning before work. And um, everything seems to be going great. All of a sudden, you start noticing that <clears throat> this person leading this Bible study is starting to, to teach some things that don't seem to be um, biblical. And at first, it might not seem that obvious. And what happens is over time, it becomes very apparent that this person is teaching serious, destructive heresy, false teaching. And it comes in secretly at first, and it becomes more evident as it goes. And eventually, what happens to these people? <clears throat> what ends up happening? They end up denying the master who bought them, and therefore, they're going to be destroyed. So I know there's a debate here. I still think that Jesus is the master. I could argue that because of how Jude uses the same term in a similar context. Jude and 2 Peter 2 are extremely similar. If you read those two things, those two chapters, Jude and 2 Peter 2, very similar formatting. And Jesus is clearly the master, the despotes, where we get the word despot, although it doesn't have negative connotations with Jesus. The despotes, the, the, the despot, <laughs> the despotes is Jesus and Jude. I think it's Jesus here as well. And the buying here, People will sometimes try to argue that this buying is a non-salvific buying, that it's something short of salvation. Uh, I think this is referring to buying for salvation. So then I'm in a real pickle because I'm arguing Jesus did not buy anyone who perishes in their sin. He only bought his elect, his true people, the true covenant community. So uh, what, are we to, what are we to make of uh, texts like this? So let me move to a quote here from Mike Riccardi one of the elders at MacArthur's church, he says this, and this is a general principle for how to interpret the Bible that we need to keep in mind always. Now, listen to this. When a superficial reading of a passage of Scripture contradicts the sound exegetical conclusions drawn from other portions of Scripture, care must be taken to see that the text be interpreted in a way that, A, does, no, does not do violence to the words, grammar, or context of the passage, words, grammar, or context of the passage in question, but also B, does not do violence to the words, grammar, or context of what? He says both the, the, the passage in question or any other passage of Scripture. That, that's a generally good hermeneutical rule. It, it, just to show, cults do this all the time. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, what they'll do is they'll, they'll take a verse that at least on a superficial reading might sound like it's teaching heresy, and they'll say it is teaching this view. So for instance, in Colossians 1, when it says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. You can see how if someone doesn't know much about the Bible, the superficial interpretation could be what? Like a Je Jehovah's Witness. Jesus is the first created being of creation. He's the firstborn that is first to be created of all creation. So Jesus is the greatest created being, but he's still a created being. That's how Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses could, could take a text like that in Colossians 1. Now the problem is, sometimes the immediate superficial reading of a text does not uh, mean what it sounds like it might mean. When, when you read it in context, you come to find out that Paul is actually relying on Psalm 89, 
where the Davidic king is called the firstborn of all the kings of the earth, which refers to a status being above everyone else, king of kings. It doesn't mean you're the first created or firstborn being. David himself, who's called the firstborn in that text in Psalm 89, David was not even the firstborn amongst his own brothers. He was the lastborn. So we're not talking about a literal birth order here. We're talking about a position or status. Jesus is supreme over all created beings. And then when you, when you take oh, it in its context, but also in the context of other passages of Scripture, you see things like John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Well, there you have it. Every created thing was made by Jesus. So Jesus cannot be created since he created it all that was created. So anyways, I could go on and on. You get the point there. Um, yes, sometimes the superficial reading of a text, once read in its context and in the wider canonical context, doesn't mean what it might seem to mean superficially. Now, that's just a generally good rule of interpretation. So back to this. When it speaks of false teachers among the people who deny Jesus who bought them, it may not mean what it first sounds like it means. And again, I don't want to cheat the text of Scripture, but here's what I believe. I believe no Scripture contradicts any other Scripture. The right understanding of any text of Scripture will harmonize with the proper and right understanding of any and every other text of Scripture. There is no contradiction. But let me say this. There, there, uh, there can appear to be tension in the text. It's not contradiction uh, in this way. Uh, Doug Moo talks about how sound doctrine is like a platform. I, I'm standing on a little, a little wooden uh, uh, platform here. Uh, think of doctrine as a, as a big platform of, of right teaching. And sometimes an author will lean all the way to one side of a platform to make a point because he's dealing with a certain opponent. And so he, he leans all the way to one side of a doctrinal point to, to, to combat that error, and another person will lean to the other side of the platform to combat another error. An example would be Paul and James regarding justification by faith. I do not think Paul and James teach a different doctrine of justification. But if you read Romans 3 and James 2, you might be tempted on a superficial reading. That's on the other slide. A superficial reading, you might say they contradict each other, but here's, here's what's going on. Paul and James have the same doctrinal platform, but they have two different opponents. Paul is dealing with legalistic uh, people who think they can earn their salvation by works righteousness. This would be a Jewish audience largely, and he is combating that. So when Paul combats the, the Jewish legalism, he leans all the way over on the platform towards we are justified by faith apart from works, and our works have nothing to do with our justification. James agrees with that. But then James will come over to this side of the platform and James will say, hey, if you think that you can live a, the Christian life without producing any good works or any transformed life, you're mistaken and you're not actually saved. You have a dead, false faith. Paul and James believe the same thing, but they're leaning off the platform in two different directions. And so uh, Peter's goal here is not to teach uh, on the specifics of the atonement. He is trying to get at what this false teaching is. And let's see in the context if Peter is is contradicting what we've seen in other texts. The answer is he's not. Uh, look, look down at 2 Peter 2.15. Referring to these false teachers, it says, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. Now, to forsake the right way means what? That means they were on the right way. To forsake the right way, they were on the right path, and then they walked away. Look at verse 19. They, that is these false teachers, promise them, this is their, their hearers, their listeners, freedom, but they themselves, that's the false teachers, are what? 
They're slaves of corruption. So although these people were members of churches, they professed faith in Christ, they had looked like real Christians, it turns out they themselves, although they promise and talk about freedom, they're actually slaves of sin. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he's enslaved. So these people were overcome, overcome by sin. The false teachers. Look at verse 20. For if after they, again, that's the false teachers, have what? Have escaped the defilements of the world. How? Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. So they get, the, the sin gets the best of them, and they're overcome by it. It says, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to do what? To turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, do you see this? The false teachers, at least outwardly, looked to have escaped from the defilements of the world. This goes back to the illustration. They were probably, many of them, pagans. They received Christ. At least it looked like it. They made a profession of faith. All their outward sins were gone. Their outward idols they gave up. They looked like they were living for whatever. Uh, sexual morality or for whatever it might be. And they gave it up. They, they stopped sleeping around. They stopped getting drunk. They stopped doing all their outward things. And what happened? They apparently, they looked like they escaped the defilements of the world. We all know people. It, it, is, it, is, it is a tragic and awful thing. But we all know people, young people, old people, who gave every appearance of having left their former life of sin and embraced a life of righteousness and holiness. And they appeared to have escaped the defilements of the world. How? Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They got to know Jesus. At least it seemed like it. They knew about Jesus, and it seemed like they truly knew Jesus in a saving way, and it seemed to have transformed their lives. I mean, I could just list person after person. I know people who led Bible studies and all kinds of things. Looked like they had escaped the world through knowledge of Jesus. And it says, then what happens later on? They are, what? Again, entangled in them and overcome, and the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known. What an amazing thing. Never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Right? So this is, this is, the, uh, this is the story where the dad is teaching adult Sunday school, and the dad is loving his Bible, and he's reading commentaries at the dinner table, getting ready for his teaching that week, and he's excited about God's Word, and he's excited about God's people, and he's praying for his kids to come to know Jesus. And then all of a sudden, whatever. He gets back into an old sin, and it drags him away and wrecks everything. It would have been better for that person never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. I mean, this is like Judas Iscariot, isn't it? Think about it. Did Judas, I'm going to get a little messy here on the screen. Could we say of Judas that he appeared to forsake everything of the world and follow Jesus? Is it, could we say that about Judas? It looked like it, right? He gave up everything he had to follow Jesus. Did it appear for much of the ministry, if you didn't know uh, what was going on underneath the surface, would it appear that he knew 
our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not just, I mean, he knew him literally as a person, but he knew him in a saving way, it would appear, uh, you would have thought. But did he, did he later become again entangled in his former sins and overcome? And was the last state of Judas worse than the first? Would it have been better for Judas never to have heard Jesus preach over and over and known him personally than after having known Jesus to have turned back? See, it seemed like he knew. And it seemed like he, he knew the way of righteousness. It seemed like uh, Judas was the real deal. I mean, on, at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, no, it, it's not like all the 11 other disciples said, yeah, we know, it's Judas. He's been a fake con man the whole time. No, no one knew it was Judas except Jesus and Judas. Peter said, is it I? John said, is it I, Lord? They didn't know who it was. Judas had done a great job hiding his false conversion, his fakeness. And so when we talk about escaping the defilements, knowing the Lord, I mean, to say that, look at this, this is really strong. To say that they knew, they had knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that, that, that's very strong. That sounds like a Christian. They, they escaped the world through knowing Jesus, our Lord and Savior. They said Jesus is Lord. They said he was Savior. They said he was Christ. They said they knew him and they changed their life. But at the end, they go back to the state they were at the first. That's like Judas. He was never saved. And if there's any doubt about that, listen, some people think Peter, I'm sure, will take this as Peter teaching you can lose your salvation. Let me just tell you, Peter does not believe that you can lose your salvation, nor does any biblical author. Uh, look at the next verse here, verse 22. What the true, true proverb says has happened to them. Now, here we go. The dog returns to its own vomit. And look at this one. The sow... After what? After washing herself, does what? Returns to wallow in the mire. Jonathan Edwards helped me so much with this text in probably 2008, 2009, uh, from his book, Religious Affections. I'll never, I don't think I'll ever forget his interpretation here. It was so clear, so compelling. Just look at the sow, the female pig. This is an amazing text. Because look what it tells us. It says that the sow, this pig, after what? Washing herself. After washing herself, later returns to wallow in the mire. This pig washed herself. She cleaned up her outward life. That's the analogy, right? So this pig, now let me ask you here, what is the nature of a pig? Okay, this is not a trick question. Does a pig have a clean nature or a dirty nature? The answer is obviously the pig has a, uh, has a dirty nature. And try as a pig might to clean itself up, to clean herself up. She can try to be clean. She can wash herself. She can make herself squeaky clean, right? She can take a bath. She can get all the dirt and grime off of herself. But does her nature find a home in cleanliness? No. Was she a pig the whole time in this story? Yes. Was her nature ever changed? No. When she washed herself, she was still a pig. And is her, did her nature still prefer the mire over washing? Did she prefer to be dirty rather than clean? Yes. So this pig never became 
anything other than a pig. I mean, you can think some animals have a clean nature, right? I mean, a household cat is definitely clean nature. You can get a cat dirty, but what's the cat going to do? It's going to lick itself until it's coughing up uh, hairballs and stuff. It, it's going it's to clean itself off. It, cats can't stand being dirty. It, the nature of a cat is to be clean. The nature of a bird is to be clean. Birds will clean themselves, always pecking around at their feathers and trying to clean out the dirt and, just in, you know, making sure their feathers are pointed in the right direction. Birds are clean by nature, but pigs are dirty. And this is an analogy for the believer and the unbeliever. An unbeliever, by nature, loves the muck and mire of sin. By, by nature, we are born dead in sin, loving sin. A new birth creates a new nature where we now love righteousness. Can a Christian get dirty? Yes. Can, can a Christian fall into sin or give, it, give it himself or herself to sin for a temporary amount of time? Yes. David and Bathsheba would be the ultimate example. Yes, it's possible. But can a Christian stay at home in the muck and mire of sin? By definition, no. It's like, a, it's like a compass needle. You can shake a compass up and it can spin all around, but eventually, where's the needle going back? It's going to go back to its nature, which is true north. So yes, Christians can temporarily get dirty in sin, but the Christian cannot live and wallow in the mire of sin. A Christian will feel miserable, will repent, and will be restored to, to walking with the Lord. But, an, but a false convert is really a pig all along, prefers the dirty over the clean, really hates uh, righteousness and loves wickedness. Even though they've cleaned up, even though, even though she's washed herself, even though she's cleaned up her outward life, uh, inevitably her nature is going to drag her back to where she loves to be, which is in the mire, wallowing in the mire. So where the pig returns is where the pig belongs by nature, which is in the muck and mire. So the washing was a show. It was an ex external <clears throat> transformation, but it wasn't real and it wasn't uh, conversion. <clears throat> now, do you see what Peter's saying here? Peter is saying as clearly as he could, that the false teachers who bring in destructive heresies were never truly saved. They were always pigs to the core. They were always loving the dirty rather than the, the clean, loving sin more than righteousness the whole time. But had they had a false conversion and tricked people and themselves into thinking that they've cleaned up their lives and following Jesus, yes. But in the end, they end up back in the sin, proving that they were never anything other than a pig who loves what is unclean. Now, if you follow that, Peter is not describing, back in these texts, someone who truly ever escaped the defilements of the world, because in their heart of hearts, they always loved the world in the muck. This is not someone who actually knew Jesus. Because here it says, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They never truly knew, uh, they, they, they never truly had the knowledge, right here, the, the, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They did not have that. They did not know him as Lord and Savior in Christ, truly. But they said they did. So they appeared to have. And they never truly knew the way of righteousness. That yes, they washed themselves outwardly. They cleaned up their outward life. But they never truly knew in that covenant-loving, true-choosing way, the way of righteousness. And it says here, after knowing it. They never truly knew it. They appeared to have known it. They professed to know it. But in their heart of hearts, they were always a pig. They never really um, knew it. So in other words, we're getting a clue already to how to interpret this text. Um, Peter is describing the false teachers how? By appearance and profession. They, some people call this the, the, the judgment of charity. Okay? By what they appeared to be, they escaped sin, they knew our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they knew the way of righteousness. By appearances, they were Christians. 
even though they weren't really. And even though they didn't really escape the world, they didn't really know Jesus. They hadn't really known the way of righteousness. But by appearances, they knew Jesus. And by profession, they knew Jesus. They'd been baptized, no doubt. If they were among the church, they had to be baptized. In the New Testament, there's no such thing as people among the church, in the church, who are not baptized. So th these were baptized, publicly professing Christians who had joined local churches, were among the people of God, and by all appearances, they were Christians. They had escaped the world. They knew our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They knew the way of righteousness. But Peter is not describing what is literally true of them spiritually. He's describing what appeared to be true of them outwardly. What, what they profess to be true outwardly. And so this is called, that's a big word I know. This has been named, if I can spell it, I'm going to spell check myself, the phenomenological view. Now, phenomenological is a word I can barely say, much less spell correctly. Um, but phenom phenomenon is what you see. So, um, a ph phenomenon is what, you, what, what appears in your vision to be there. It's not necessarily something that's there. You could have a hallucination and see phenomena. You could see something, but it's not really there. Okay? So the phenomenological view is not about what's really true of these people. It's what appears to be true, what looked to be true, what by their profession of faith and, and what they said about themselves appeared to be true. And I want to show you that this view, I think, really is what Peter is saying. And uh, just to spill the beans on where I'm going here, to go back to the first verse, there are, will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So you see where I'm going with this? Just like they appeared to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but did not truly, just as they appeared to know the way of righteousness, but did not truly know it, just as they looked as though they had escaped the defilements of sin in the world through knowing Jesus, but hadn't really, because they were pigs all along, so they had claimed to have been bought by Jesus. In other words, they claimed to be saved. They claimed to be Christians. They claimed that Christ bought them. And by all appearances, they had looked like they had been bought. They said that they were bought. Phenomenologically, by appearances, they were bought. If you would have known them before they started preaching heresy, you would have said these people were bought by Jesus. They knew Jesus. They were saved. They were walking with Jesus. They, they loved the Lord. So Peter is speaking of them according to what appeared to be true before they fell away, what they said was true before they denied Christ. He says, listen, these false teachers who were among you who claimed to be bought, they've ended up, they've now denied Jesus, their master, who they said bought them, who appeared to have bought them, but now we know had not truly bought them. They were not truly bought by Christ because we know what? They're going to be destroyed. They're going to bring on themselves swift destruction. And again, this goes back to a, an earlier point. If Jesus bought them, how could they be destroyed? This is the question, right? If they are bought, how can they end up being destroyed? Because if bought means bought, you can't be destroyed, right? If Jesus purchased you, he saved you, bought you, ransomed you, redeemed you, you're not going to be destroyed. So I don't think Peter is contradicting himself. Like Jesus, he bought them, he saved them, but now they're going to be lost. No, he's not talking about losing your salvation. He said they were pigs all along. They were always pigs. They just looked like Christians and they turned out not to be. He's saying they claimed to be bought, they appeared to be bought, turned out they were false teachers. Yes, they had been among you, but they, they're, they're bringing on themselves destruction. They were not really bought. They only appeared to have been bought. Here's how Tom Schreiner, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, speaks about this. 
here it is. Peter's language is phenomenological. Okay, phenomenological. In other words, it's what? It appeared as if the Lord had purchased the false teachers. Similarly, the false teachers gave every appearance of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And they appeared to have known the righteous saving way. It appeared like it, but it wasn't true. They appeared to have been bought, but they weren't. They appeared to know Jesus, they didn't. They appeared to know righteousness, they didn't. They were pigs all along. And if this sounds like a, people could call this special pleading, which is basically where a verse does not fit your position, and so you do special pleading, which is you, you, you argue for different rules for that verse so that you can twist out of uh, the clear meaning of that text, so that you can keep your theological system intact and den deny what a clear text of Scripture says. Is that what we're doing in this text? I can tell you, I, I could, I mean, I, you could say I, I could be sincerely wrong. I sincerely don't think that's what we're doing. Let me give you a text from Jesus along these lines. You, you know the parable of the soils. Look at the way Luke describes it in Luke 8, 13. So we, we know the path soil gets snatched away, but let's look at the rocky soil. The seed falls on the rocks, right? <clears throat> and the ones on the rocks are those who, now look what happens. When they hear the word, this is amazing. What do they do? They receive it with joy. Now, what do you call someone who hears the word of God, the gospel of the kingdom, and receives it with joy? What do you call that person? You would call that person a Christian. They rece someone receives the word with joy. I mean, don't we define faith as receiving Jesus? Faith is receiving the message, right? It's receiving Jesus. So here you've got people who are receiving the word, right? They're receiving the word with joy. What do you call this person? This is a Christian. By all appearances. So again, we are talking about by appearance. This is not a, a real Christian. This is someone who appears to be a Christian. And then Jesus adds these terrifying words. He says, but these have no root. And look at this. They believe, but only for a while. And in time of testing, what happens? They fall away. So these people hear the word. They receive it apparently by faith, with joy. And then Jesus adds, they have no root, so they believe for a while. Wait, what? They, they believe for a while? Look at this. Jesus says they believe. They believe for a while. So receiving and believing go together here. You can see that. These people hear the word. They receive it with joy. They believe. They believe in the word of Jesus with joy. That sounds like a Christian. And I would say, by appearance, phenomenologically, by appearances, they were Christians. They were bought. They received Christ. They were saved. But in reality, they weren't. This is what makes it so tricky with, with someone who's a false professor of faith. Because time will tell. What does Jesus say? In time of testing, what happens? They fall away. So they looked like they had received the word, but they hadn't really. They looked like their joy was the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, but it wasn't really the fruit of the Spirit. It looked like they had believed, but it was only intellectual. It wasn't a real heart belief. 
And that came true for after a while in the time of testing, they fell away. And the falling away, right, th this falling away proved that they did not really receive it. It, dis it. it disproves it. Now, if that's not clear enough, let's keep going. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares, riches, and pleasures of life. So these people, again, in, in Matthew's version, it says um, they sprout up, but then they're choked by the, by, by the thorns of this world. So they're choked by cares, riches, and pleasures, but they look like Christians. They're sprouting up among the thorns. It looks like they've received Christ. There's a new plant growing, but is it actually real Christianity? No, because what, what does Jesus say? As time goes on, what do we find out? <clears throat> Their fruit doesn't, doesn't uh, mature. As Matthew says, they don't produce fruit. The fruit never blossoms. They never really produce long-term real Christian character. It looked real for a time, but their deepest commitments showed. Just like the pig, where do they end up? What ends up happening? Just like the pig, over time, what they really love comes out. Their nature shows itself. And what are they obsessed with? What, what are they obsessed with at the end of the day? The pleasures of life. This life, right? That they're obsessed with life in this world. That's why their cares, riches, pleasures of this life. They're, they're obsessed with this world, not the next world, this world. And that's what chokes out the word. It's like Demas, right? We all know of Demas. I believe it's in Colossians 4. Paul mentions Demas as one of his fellow workers along with Luke and others. But when we, when we get to 2 Timothy 4, he says, Demas has forsaken me. And what does he say? Demas has forsaken me um, in love with this present world. So how could Paul call Demas one of Paul, the Apostle Paul's fellow workers? And then a few years later, not many years later, about four or five years later, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has forsaken me and gone to, I think it was Thessalonica or wherever it was. H how is that true? Well, when Paul called him a fellow worker, he meant for all Paul knew, according to appearances, he was a fellow Christian, a fellow worker with Paul. But as time went on, did the cares, riches, and pleasures of life choke out Demas's fruitfulness so that he never really produced mature, lasting, real fruit? And did he end up forsaking Paul and God's, God's will for his life, his commanded will, uh, because he loved this present world? Yeah, yeah. The pleasures of life choked him out. He proved to never be a Christian, but Paul called him a fellow worker earlier because by all appearances, Paul thought he was a fellow worker. Paul thought he was a Christian. Turned out he was not. Now, here's why I'm using Luke's version of the parable right now. Just a couple verses after this end. So this is verse 15. Skip down to verse 18, and Luke adds this statement from Jesus that I think is amazing. I also learned this from Jonathan Edwards in Religious Affections, that this is an amazing, uh, amazing follow-up to the parable of the soils. Jesus gives a warning, and it's an appropriate warning. Take care then how you hear. What is Jesus trying to say? It really matters how we listen to the gospel, how we respond to it, how we live, right? Take care then how you hear. Don't hear like the rocky soil that believes and rejects. Don't hear like the thorny soil that believes and then is choked out. No, take the care uh, then how you hear. For the one, now look at this. The one who has, what? More will be given. Now look at this. From the one who 
has not, and here's the part that Luke adds that's so interesting, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. That's amazing. Even what he thinks he has. So, so look, take care how you hear the gospel. For the one who truly has salvation, more is coming, especially in eternity. But the one who has not, the one who thinks he's saved but doesn't actually have salvation, the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. What's that? That's Jesus, salvation, etc. This person thinks that he has Jesus and salvation. He doesn't really because it says he has not. He's not truly saved, but he thinks he has. He thinks he has Jesus. He thinks he has eternal life. And even what he thinks he has will be taken away. In other words, the, the salvation he thinks he has, he's not going to have on final judgment. The Jesus he thinks is his savior is going to be his judge on final judgment. He doesn't really have salvation. The one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. And so the, the, the rocky soil thinks he has salvation, but doesn't. He has not. The thorny soil thinks he has salvation, but has not. And what he thinks he has, which is Jesus and kingdom and life and eternity, that's going to be taken away. And it's not going to be, it's not, taken away here cannot mean losing salvation. You see this? When it says taken away, it cannot mean uh, losing salvation because it says that he doesn't really have it, has not, and it simply says he thinks he has it. So you think you have salvation, and you're gonna it's going to be taken away, but you never really had it in the first place. This, again, is a kind of phenomenological way of speaking that Jesus is doing. The person by appearances had Jesus. This person thought he had Jesus in salvation. By appearances, others might have thought this person was converted. But in reality, this person was not saved. Now, just to back up the idea that you cannot lose your salvation, 1 John 2.19 is a classic text here. This talks about um, antichrists or false teachers. Many antichrists, he says in the verse before, have come. False teachers. And here's what he says. They, the false teachers, what? Went out from us. That means they used to be part of the covenant community. They were baptized members of local churches. They were part of us, apparently. They looked like they were part of the people of God. But they went out. They left. They abandoned the true teaching of Christ. And he says, how did that happen? He says, why? But they were, they, the same group, were not of us. So how can you come out from the church but never be part of the church? The answer is, phenomenologically, they were part of the church. By appearances, they had come out from us. They were part of us and left. But in reality, they were never really of us. So by appearances, they left the church. But by reality, they were never part of the church. They might have been members of local churches, but they were not truly ever members of Christ's invisible true church. How do we know that? He's going to give you a reason. Four. Here's how we know. If they had been of us, had they truly been saved, they would have what? Continued with us. So there it is. They would have continued. So if they were really part of God's people, had they been of us, had they been truly part of God's people, truly saved, by definition, they would persevere to the end. They would have continued with us. Perseverance, continuance in the faith, is the sign of true conversion. And if you walk away from Jesus, if you walk away from the church, you were not really of us. Because if you would have been of us, you would have continued with us. And then finally, he says here, 
But they went out. They went out. Why? That it might become plain, evident to all, that they all are not of us. So look at this. This is, this is amazing. That word plain is an amazing word right there. He doesn't say when they left us, they lost their salvation. No, he says, no. When they went out, it then became outwardly evident to all that they were never truly saved. Because if they were truly saved, they would have continued with us. But they left the faith and left the church that it might become plain. Not, not that it might become true that they're no longer saved, but that it might become obvious, evident, plain to all that they're not saved, never were saved. They were never really part of us. Again, here, this is about appearance. Until they actually denied Jesus and became little antichrists and left the church with false teaching, until they did that, it was not plain. It was not clear. By appearances, it was not known publicly that they were not truly saved. They would be sitting next to you in a Bible study, and you would have no idea this person was not saved. You would have thought this person saved, like Paul thought Demas was saved in Colossians. But by 2 Timothy, he realizes he's not. So these people, as long as they were in the church submitting to sound doctrine, it looked like they were part of us. But when they went out, suddenly what was always true became by appearances clear that they were never really of us. So back to uh, 2 Peter 2, here's what Tom Schreiner says about the group there of false teachers. They seemed to be part of the redeemed community, the church. But what happened? Their apostasy, their falling away, demonstrated, again, this is the public part, demonstrated means it, it, was, it became plain. Um, here we go. That's like when, when John says it became plain. It was demonstrated, publicly became known by appearances that what? They never truly belonged to God. Never truly belonged. So when they fell away, it became publicly plain by appearances they were not saved. But until they fell away, they were never saved. They were always pigs, but they looked like they were real until it became plain. Here's what Schreiner goes on. Furthermore, Peter's use of, here it is again, phenomenological language makes sense for the false teachers were vitally involved in the church. It was not as if uh, outsiders who never even claimed to be Christians arrived and began propagating teachings contrary to the gospel. Paul's not describing flat out pagans who never profess faith. He's talking about people from among the church who once claimed to be Christians, looked like Christians, had every reason to think they were Christians, but at least we had every reason to think it, but they end up being the ones who fall away. On the contrary, what were the false teachers? The false teachers were insiders who departed. They were in the church, out, they were in the visible church, but then they left, and John would say, when they left, it became plain obvious, demonstrable that they were never really of us. So the false teachers were insiders who departed from what they first taught. So they first taught the truth. And hence, Peter underscores the gravity of what occurred. Schreiner continues, those who were fomenting the false way were, now this is so important, they were so to speak Christians. Okay? They were not really Christians. They were so to speak Christians. Now, you, you, you know people, and, and listen, even if you believe, which I do it with all my heart, in eternal security of the saints, that true believers will not lose their salvation. We'll talk about this in about three or four weeks with 
perseverance of the saints in Sunday school. I believe this is taught abundantly clearly in the Bible, that you cannot lose your salvation. Even though I believe that, I believe that with all my heart, that doesn't mean that we don't speak in a, in a kind of by appearances, phenomenological way, even if we don't use that term. We've all said, hey, a buddy you had growing up who you, was, you were sure was a Christian ended up as an adult leaving the faith and walking away, and you say, this person used to be a committed Christian, and now they're not a Christian anymore. When you speak that way, you're not saying that they lost their salvation. You're simply speaking by appearances, by phenomenology, by the way things looked, by the way they, they spoke. You're simply saying, yeah, my, my whole life that person was a Christian, and all of a sudden that person falls away and they're no longer a Christian. I'm speaking phenomenologically when I say they're no longer a Christian. That's the way we speak. We know what we mean. We don't mean that they lost their salvation. We mean by every appearance, this person was a godly man, and all of a sudden this person has fallen back into mountains of sin and refuses to repent. And, and we might say, they used to be a committed Christian, and now they're no longer a Christian. I don't mean that literally. I mean that phenomenologically or by appearances. So we continue. He says, they, this is Shriner, they were to all appearances bought by Christ. And they seemed to know him as Lord and Savior. Peter is not claiming that they were actually Christians or that they were truly redeemed or bought or that they truly knew Jesus as Lord and Savior, but what? That they gave every reason initially for observers to think that such was the case. There it is right there. They gave every reason initially for observers to think that that was the case. By observation, by phenomenology, by appearances, they gave every reason initially to look that way. But that was not the case. Their subsequent departure showed that they were actually what? In reality, not by appearance, but in reality, their departure showed publicly what was true all along. That they were dogs and pigs the whole time with a dirty nature. In other words, they were never truly changed, and thus eventually they revealed publicly their true nature, which was there all along, just like Judas loved money all along. Mike Riccardi says, the phenomenological view, uh, and I agree with this, best explains all of Peter's language concerning the false teachers. I really don't think this is a cop-out. I think this is really what Peter is saying, and it fits perfectly with limited atonement. Peter is speaking of the false teachers once again, I know this is repetitious, according to their outward appearance for a time as professing believers. These false teachers were among you. They were part of the visible church. This is describing those who gave every appearance that they had a saving knowledge of Christ, professing to belong to him, who then later defected from the fellowship of the faithful, proving what? That they never really belonged to Christ in the first place. I think that's exactly right. Therefore, we ought to conclude that Peter speaks of these false teachers, what? As if they were believers. Charitably speaking of them according to their, what? Profession of faith and what others had supposed them to be. Even though he knows they were never believers in the first place. I think that's exactly right. Scripture often speaks of those within the visible church with this judgment of charity ascribing them titles and privileges that only belong to those who are genuine believers. Hence, Judas is called, what? A disciple in John 12, 4. Though he is nevertheless a son of perdition. 
So also the author of Hebrews warns his congregation against what? Apostasy. Thus acknowledging that there are no doubt unbelievers among the visible church for no genuine Christian can truly fall away. While also he calls them what? He calls them brethren in Hebrews 3.10 and even holy brothers in Hebrews 3.1. So again, with the judgment of charity, the author of Hebrews refers to his church that he's writing to as holy brothers. But he knows that some are brothers only by appearance. Some are holy brethren only phenomenologically. And that's why he warns the visible church about apostasy. Because some of them may not be true believers and might actually do that. They might actually apostatize. Thus, these false teachers who professed to be believers, but were never believers to begin with, never really and truly escaped the defilements of the world. They had never really and truly known the way of righteousness, but only appeared to have. Uh, They had never really and truly been bought. And that's our key word. They had never really and truly been bought by the one uh, they once claimed as their master, but only what? only appeared to have been redeemed, only appeared to have been bought by Christ. So I don't think this is teaching unlimited atonement that they were actually bought by Christ. I think throughout the whole text of of 2 Peter 2, Peter is talking about their appearance versus what is now true of them. Carl Truman uh, seems to take the same view in his uh, his essay on this. He says, uh, it is possible to understand the term that they're bought in a phenomenological sense, whereby the reference is really to those who claimed to have been bought. Again, they weren't really bought. It was, they claimed to have been bought. The reference is to appearance, not spiritual reality. The same phenomenon is described in Hebrews 10.29. Now, I want to take a second here because we haven't talked about Hebrews 10.29, but he brings it up. thought it'd be good to mention this real quick. I think the same thing is going on like we mentioned in Hebrews. So the author of Hebrews writes to professing Christians he calls holy brothers. And this, he knows that there's going to be false converts in that group. And so what does he say? He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So the author thinks it's possible that there are adversaries of Jesus amongst the we. If we go on sinning, we're going to experience judgment and fire for the adversaries. In other words, he's not saying real Christians are going to go to hell. He's saying there are some in the, in the church, the visible church, who are the we, who, who may not be real Christians and may end up showing that by deliberate sinning, and they may end up be, be showing themselves to be adversaries, not true covenant members. Then he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Look at this. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by... The one. This is a person in the visible church who has apostatized and rejected Jesus. The one who has done what? Who has trampled underfoot the Son Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant. Now here's the tricky phrase. By which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Now you can see here someone who argues for... um, unlimited atonement would say, look, this person's not a Christian and he was sanctified by the blood of the covenant. And this is covenant blood here. How was this person sanctified by the blood of the covenant? If they're lost, if they end up trampling underfoot the son of God, outraging the spirit of grace and will experience vengeance when God repays. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
And, and here's, again, I think we're speaking phenomenologically. Now, there's two ways you can take this verse. Um, some people take this as the he here is Jesus. So the blood of the covenant by which Jesus was sanctified. That is certainly possible grammatically. That, that really could be what this verse means. I, I'm not going to say for sure that's wrong. That re really could be the meaning of this verse. But I think it's more likely referring to um, a phenomenological reading like Second Peter. I think it's saying that this person, by all appearances, was sanctified by the blood of the covenant. By all appearances, this person uh, loved the Son of God and loved the Spirit of grace. But then when they, when they end up uh, rejecting that thing and they sin deliberately, they actually end up trampling on the Son of God they claim to love. They end up profaning the blood of the covenant by which they claim they were sanctified, or perhaps better, the blood of the covenant which had separated them from sin in the world. It brought them into the covenant community, and it seemed to set them apart from the world, but they show themselves not to have been truly sanctified by it. And you see here at the end of the verse, and again, it says what? The Lord will do what? The Lord will judge his people. Here again, I think he's talking about his visible people. I don't, think, I don't think he's saying that, that uh, God's going to send to hell his own people. I think he's saying amongst his visible people, God is going to bring judgment. And if you're a false convert in the church, you're not going to escape judgment. Uh, you're going to actually be in big trouble for uh, trampling Jesus underfoot and profaning the blood of the covenant by which you were separated from this world, brought into the body of Christ. You claim to have been truly saved and sanctified. That, that very blood is going to cause all the more outrage when you trample upon it because it's a fearful thing to fall into God's hands. Uh, Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, great commentator, professor. He's got a great commentary on Revelation and on Hebrews. Here's what Dennis Johnson says. It is all too possible to be part of the covenant community, that is part of a church, and even to be sanctified in what sense? To be set apart from the unbelieving world. How? Visibly and externally by the blood of the covenant. But then what? But then through unbelief, to throw away the benefits offered in the gospel. And I think that's what's going on in Hebrews uh, 10, 29. Visibly and externally, they are set apart from the world. To use the language of 2 Peter, they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but they end up back entangled in them all over again. And that is like trampling Jesus underfoot and uh, hating and despising the, the blood by which you claim to have been sanctified. All right, now I want to move into, uh, I think this may be our last text here, Isaiah 53. Very familiar to many of us as Christians. Does this text teach a limited or unlimited atonement? I'm going to argue it teaches a limited or particular atonement. Let's look at this. We'll read some of it. He had no former majesty that, what, we should look at him. So we're going to be asking who this we is. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So clearly this we at this point is not converted because the we here is not esteeming Jesus. I, I believe this is referring to the elect before conversion. This is referring to God's people before they're brought to Christ. But let's see if that's what's really going on here. Surely he has borne our griefs. So, Whoever the we and the our are is who Jesus is dying for. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So who is the our, the we, the us? I think it's going to get clearer. But he was pierced for our transgressions. <clears throat> he, 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, what? We are healed. Now, those who believe in unlimited atonement will take this next phrase, and they do, to refer to everyone in the world. When it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has what? <clears throat> Laid on him the iniquity of us all. So I, I've, I've read just the other day uh, a proponent of unlimited atonement using this verse to say, this is clearly teaching that Jesus died for every person in the world without distinction. There's, he died for everyone in the same way because it says here, all we, this is everyone in the world, like sheep have gone astray. We, all of us, every one of us in the whole world have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the all we and the us all have to be the same group, right? The all we and the us all have to be the same group. And that's the same as the we here. So whoever the we and us all is, that's who Jesus took the sins for, took the sins of. And I want to say here, yes, it's true that everyone in the world has strayed into sin and everyone in the world has turned his own way. I don't think in this text, though, the we and the all we refers to the whole world. The we and the all we, the us all, I believe refers to the elect, God's covenant people in Isaiah 53. If you don't believe me, stick with me here. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Now, here it comes. Stricken. Why did Jesus die? For what? For the transgression of my people. And here it is. I mean, this is just huge right here. My people. Um, Jesus died for his people, his elect people. That's the trans. So the, the, the we in this text is God's elect people, his covenant people. The us all is all of God's elect covenant people. He took the transgression of the covenant people here. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see who? His offspring. He shall prolong his, day, his days. The offspring here are all God's true covenant people. Um, in Hebrews, he says, I and the children God has given me. All of his elect are called his, the children God has given him. The offspring, his true people who will be saved by his offering of guilt. That's the we, that's the us. If that's not clear enough, a little bit more here. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, now look, here it is. So when Jesus dies, he's doing it knowingly. And who does Jesus know he's going to save? Who does he plan to save? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And here I think it's crystal clear. The many and the their iniquities is the same group. It's not everybody in the world. The many here is all of his elect covenant people. And this is the language that Jesus picks up at the Last Supper in Matthew when he says, when they're uh, having the Last Supper, Jesus says that he is dying for the many. Listen to this. Takes the cup. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, 
saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Who are the many for whom Jesus died? They're the many who are mentioned right here. He will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Who is this group? It's right here. Verse nine, he was stricken for who? The transgression of my people. It's the elect. It's a particular redemption. It's God's covenant people. That's, that's, who, he was, that's who he died to save. And, and if that's not clear enough, let's look at the last verse, verse 12 of Isaiah 53. God speaking of Jesus says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, strong because he poured out his soul to death. Why did he die? He was numbered with the transgressors. And here's the thing right here. Yet he bore the sin of many again, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Now here it is. This is so, this brings together so many things we've talked about. If you've been around for these past videos, what we see over and over again is atonement, which is bearing sin and propitiating God's wrath and intercession. Remember, these two things are what a priest does and he always atones for the same select group of people that he intercedes for before God. The high priest would atone for the sins of Israel, not the Philistines or the Egyptians. That's a limited atonement for Israel on the day of atonement. And who did he intercede for? He went in before God's presence with 12 stones on his chest representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And who does he pray for? He prays for the elect people of God, the covenant people only, not for the Philistines, not the Egyptians, not the Midianites, nobody else, not the Assyrians. He prays for the people of God, the elect people. The priest makes atonement for the elect people only. He intercedes for the elect people only. <clears throat> Now, do you see it here? Here you have Jesus atoning for the sins of the many and interceding for the same group. Do we see it again? Atonement, bearing the sins of many, interceding for the many, the transgressors. Again, atonement for the many and intercession for the sinners is the group that Jesus died to save, which is his people. He will save his people from their sins. So again, you see that the intercession and the atonement both are to the many. It's for many. It's not for every individual person who's ever lived. And so even the great chapter Isaiah 53 teaches, I think clearly, a limited atonement or a particular redemption. So thank you for watching. I hope these were beneficial and uh, we'll pick back up with irresistible grace, Lord willing, on Sunday.